Uh, if you've got a Bible, turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. We'll throw the verses up here in just a moment. I don't know how you are when you're really tired. I don't know how you do when you get really tired. I can fall asleep so fast. Falling asleep is my superpower. Uh, I'm going to be honest. Like, I can fall asleep uh, if, if, like, if it's an hour that I've got, I can fall asleep for an hour, recharge, be good to go. If it's 20 minutes, there's been moments I've said to Natalie, is Ruth like this? There's been moments I've said to Natalie, babe, I got seven minutes and I need a nap. And here's what I'll do. I'll throw on Andy Griffith, season one only. There's something about season one of Andy Griffith that will put me to sleep. If any of you uh, struggle with insomnia, put it on Andy Griffith, season one. It's so slow and boring sounding. It puts me to sleep so fast. I can take a seven-minute nap with Andy Griffith and be recharged and ready to go. I prefer to be sitting when I take a nap. I could be standing. I have been known to fall asleep standing if that is what is required. I know it's needed because my brain will feel like sludge. Do any of you ever get so tired that your brain literally feels like like that stuff that becomes like the asphalt and on the road, like just road tar. Uh, I can get like when I get so tired, I get like roller coaster emotions and squirrel brain. Like, so my emotions are like this, and my mind's like, pew, 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 pew. Uh, I can get all of that, and then I take a nap, and God, it's like God hits reset on my mind and my heart and my emotions. How do you know for you if you're out of gas? Like, some of you might get silly. Does anybody in here, when you get really tired, you get silly? Ari, I'm going to imagine that, yeah. <laughs> Hope, too. I'm going to imagine hope gets a little silly. Uh, how many of you get weepy? Does anybody get weepy when you get super tired? Yeah. <laughs> the one I'm married to for 17 and a half years. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand on this one, how many of you start making bad choices? Like, a sleeve of Oreos would never be tempting to me under normal conditions, except when I'm tired, and then, like, I'll take two sleeves of Oreos. Like, uh, some of you get angry. Some of you get so tired, you can get, like, delusional. Like, you're not even seeing reality the correct way. I get it. Like, even the best of us eventually has enough. Like, even the best of us eventually has enough. One of the most liberating things that I've come to grips with in the Bible, uh, and I've come to grips with it here and not fully here, is that God made us from dust. God made human beings from dust. We're not made of titanium or some material plastic that bounces back all the time. We're made from the dust. So eventually, even the best of us has enough. And here's the hard part, um, because I think, we've, I think we've bought this as human beings, and I think we bought it as a culture. And I even think even more sometimes that churches have bought into this. And it's a really dangerous um, it's a really dangerous idea that will put roots down in our souls. Everything can't always be victory. Everything can't always be victory. Uh, everything can't always be the grind. Everything can't always be taking the mountains. You can't always be charging into battle. You just can't do it. Like we don't see that scripture calls us to that. So if you're here today for the first time or it's been a minute, we're in week two of a series called Not So Fast because I was talking with a dad this week in the neighborhood. He told me, he said, JD, I can't do X with our kids uh, coming up. And he said, man, uh, life is just too hectic. I can't manage all that we've got going on with our kids' schedule right now. And I said, dude, three months ago, you just told me that you love the pandemic because it slowed you down. And what happened? Like the pandemic ended and now like 
the pandemic ended, school's back in, and you are running just as hard and fast as you were right before the pandemic. Remember those 18 months when you were like, I love this, I get to take it slow. What happened to that? Like culture and life and your kids' sports and your work and school and everything will suck you in so fast. And I think that the gift of the last 18 months ought to be just this subtle reminder from God, not culture, that our lives don't have to go so fast. And even more, our hearts don't have to go so fast. And so today I want us to look at the story of Elijah. And uh, we're going to start in verse 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 8 of the story of Elijah. In just a moment, I'm going to give you uh, just a a bit of background. But I just want you to hear this uh, part of this story. Now, King Ahab, 1 Kings 19, verse 1, King Ahab told Queen Jezebel all that Elijah, the prophet, the great prophet. In fact, when Jesus uh, talks about the law and the prophets, Moses would kind of embody the law and Elijah would embody the prophets, the people who say, thus says the Lord. This is what God says about culture and faith and following him. King Ahab told Queen Jezebel all that Elijah had done, how he had killed all the Baal, all the Baal prophets, all the false prophets, the anti God prophets with the sword. Now, I have to tell you this in a minute, but this is going to make more sense if I tell you now, if you don't know this story. So, Elijah is the great prophet of God, and King Ahab is, um, is the king of Israel, but he's a pagan king. He's a backsliding king. He doesn't, all the, all the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel were bad kings. Ahab's an especially bad king, but not necessarily because he's evil on his own, but he's evil by association. He marries. He's from the northern part of what was ancient Israel, and he marries Queen Jezebel. Now, Jezebel is one of those ideas that in culture has taken on a life of its own, right? But it's because of this woman. She was uh, the daughter of a king of Sidon, which was a northern coastal uh, tribal people in uh, the ancient Near East, and they were Baal worshipers. And so Baal worshipers believed in child sacrifice. They were really violent people. And so Ahab, who ought to be worshiping the Lord but doesn't, marries Queen Jezebel, who definitely does not worship the Lord. And together they kind of unite their kingdoms, but they're seen in the Bible as Ahab and Jezebel ruling over Israel. And Jezebel is evil. Like if you can think like like. Jezebel is like Disney villain evil, right? Like if you can think about Jafar and Cruella DeVille or Ursula having a baby together, like it would be Jezebel. Like this woman is bad, bad news. She, she finds the prophets of God kind of like Anakin in Star Wars and she just wipes them out and kills them. And so Elijah goes to Ahab and Jezebel and says, guess what? the Lord has spoken. It's not going to rain for three years. And so for three years, it doesn't rain. And God is trying to get the nation's attention. And at the end of the three years, there's this showdown on Mount Carmel where all the prophets of Baal come together against Elijah by himself. And they have a showdown. And Elijah says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to figure out who's God and whoever's God, we're going to serve him. And so you're going to cut up an animal. You're going to lay it on the altar. I'm going to cut up an animal. I'm going to lay it on the altar. And whoever's God brings down fire will be the God that's the true and living Lord. And the prophets of Baal and Ahab and Jezebel all kind of agree. It's a decent plan. And so 
they do it, the prophets of Baal are out there and nothing happens all day. They're dancing around the altar screaming, Baal, Baal, let it rain. They're cutting themselves in worship and fear and there's blood running everywhere and there's, at the end of the day, nothing happened and they just feel so defeated. And then literally the Bible says at dusk, Elijah gets up and he rearranges the altar and he puts the bull on it. And then he even, after three years of drought, says, go and get some water. And they take these big jars of water and they pour it and just douse the offering. And then Elijah prays to the Lord. And fire, like, like an unbelievable fire, falls from heaven. It burns the animal and it burns the sticks and it burns the rocks and everything is burnt up. And then Elijah annihilates the prophets of Baal because they were a danger to God's people. And he wipes them out. And so that's where we are. King Ahab tells Queen Jezebel all that Elijah had done, how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Right after this, it rains for the first time in three years. And that is where the story picks up. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. In other words, you're going to die, sucker. Like, you are going to die just like the prophets of Baal. And, and may God kill me if I do not kill you. Your time is up. She is furious. I can just see, like, Ursula from Little Mermaid, like, you know, just ratcheting up these threats. And so, verse 3. Now, then he, the guy who just called down fire, from heaven after three years of prophesying it wouldn't rain and it didn't rain. Then he was afraid and he arose and he ran for his life and he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. So if Elijah's doing his prophetic ministry up in the northern part of what was once one kingdom in Israel, now he goes down to Judah, which is the southern part of that kingdom. And Beersheba's as far away as you can go from Queen Jezebel. And Beersheba is as far away as a person in ancient Israel could go and still be within the borders of the promised land. After Beersheba, it was nothing but wilderness. And so literally Elijah goes to the edge of the world. And then he comes to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, the southern kingdom, and he left his servant there. Verse four, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He goes to the edge of civilization, leaves his servant and then keeps going for another day. And he came and he sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die saying, it is enough now, Lord, take away my life for I'm no better than my father's. It's a suicide mission on some level, but he wouldn't take his own life. He's so tired and so scared that Queen Jezebel is going to kill him, that he goes to the edge of civilization, leaves his servant, goes another day, and says, God, I'm done. I'm done. Take away my life. I'm not even better than my own father's. I'm no different. After all that he's just done and experienced, verse 5, and he lay down and he slept under a broom tree. If you write in your Bible, underlying slept. <laughs> all right? He slept under a broom tree and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake 
if you underline in your Bible, underline cake. God sent an angel to bring this tired man a cake. Now, I don't think it was a chocolate cake, but I think it was pretty life-giving. And when you're on death's door, it's pretty awesome. He brought him a cake baked on hot stones in a jar of water, and he ate and he drank. And if you underline your Bible, and then he laid down again, underline again. That's really important. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, arise and eat for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and he ate and he drank and he went in strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, to the Mount of God. And then we'll sort of sum up what happens next in just a moment. Should have been the greatest moment of Elijah's life and he absolutely hit rock bottom. He got to the end. He got to the absolute end because King Ahab and Queen Jezebel were so evil and the victory took all the energy that he had left. And four things Elijah does. Don't write these down. Just listen. There's four things that happen to Elijah here that I think are important. One, he forgets who he is and what God just did. There comes a moment that we can get so tired that we forget who God is and what he's done. You ever been that tired? You ever gotten news so tough? You ever feel like you've been in the fight so long that we forget who God is and what he has done? The prophet, the prophet was so tired from the victory that he forgot who God is and what God had just done. He's afraid, he's scared, he runs for his life. You ever had to run from your life? I was on a run the other day. We were up in Maine for a couple of days, had on like a prayer retreat, and I was out for a run. And Natalie had said, I don't know that I want you running. There might be bears out there or moose. I was like, well, first of all, I think I'm faster than a moose, I hope. And two, I don't think, um, some of you are saying, no, I'm not faster than a moose. Okay. Well, I'm glad I didn't see any moose. Uh, I knew I wasn't going to be faster than a bear, but I said, like, it'll be bears. We're like, in a quasi neighborhood. So I, I risked it. Well, I'm running, I'm almost to the end of my run and a dog barks and man, it may as well have been a bear. Four miles into the run, I hit another level. Like I hit another level of running. And, and then I realized like, I'm running from a dog that I'm pretty sure was in a fence. Like, I'm good here. And I slowed down. It was that moment, like, when you trip walking down the road and then you, like, look around, like, did anybody see me fall just now? Like, I'm running for my life and I realize I'm safe. And, uh, and so I just started walking. Elijah runs for his life from a pagan king and queen. Number three, the third thing he does in response to all this is that he goes alone far from Jezebel to the edge of the world and then forth. And this is crazy. He says, Lord, I just want to die. I just want to die. This is the, one of the godliest human beings that the Bible talks to us about. And he just wants to die. If you ever get so tired that you just want God to end it all, understand that you're not the first human being. And that does not mean that you don't love Jesus. Sometimes life just beats us up so bad that we figure we can't go on anymore. God would be more glorified if we were gone than if we kept going. We get that way. 
That's, human. That's being human. It doesn't mean we don't love God. It means we're out of gas. And that's what happened to Elijah. Even the best of us eventually has enough. One of the most steadying quotes for me of the last year or two is, the best of men are men at best. The best of men are men at best. Andy Stanley says this. I think we have a slide for it. People who never take a break end up breaking. If you want to take a note today, there it is. People who never take a break end up breaking. Christians who never take a break end up breaking. Leaders who never take a break end up breaking. Moms who never take a break end up breaking. Dads who never take a break end up breaking. People who never take a break end up breaking. There is such a thing, and it's usually not immediate, by the way. It's leaders, Christians, people who never take a break. It's like taking your MacBook and unplugging it from the power source. You don't realize because the battery is at 90%, all the work it's doing, but eventually an unplugged computer hits zero. So we have to remember when the battery is at 90% that if I don't plug in or I don't put it to sleep, eventually the battery will get to zero. It's not immediate and you don't get to set the timing. And if I have learned one lesson from failure, it's that when you break, you don't get to pick the moment when that happens. It doesn't usually happen when you're on vacation. It doesn't usually happen when life is easy. People who don't take a break end up breaking. So there becomes, and Elijah models this for us, such a thing as too much victory. There's such a thing as too much action. There's such a thing as too much fighting the bad guys. There is. There's, there's such a thing as too much righteous justice. If I have heard anything from an African-American male friends in the last 15 months, the one thing that they, I've consistently heard my African-American brother say to me is, I am tired. I am tired. I'm tired. I've asked, uh, I called a couple of folks in our church after George Floyd passed away last year. And I was like, how are you? And consistently I would hear, pastor, I am tired. I feel like we fight to get through this and then just something else. It's just injustice after injustice after injustice. And though that is not my story, as a white American guy fighting that area of injustice, I can understand on some level the exhaustion of that. Righteous justice after righteous justice after righteous justice will take a toll on you. You just can't do it. Um, I remember hearing one uh, brother say, I just want there to be a day where I don't have to carry the cause. That was powerful to me. That stuck out. I still remember that statement 15 months later. Even victory, if you're writing something down, this is worth writing down too, actually. Even victory can feel like defeat when you're out of gas. If your victory begins to feel like defeat, that be warned. Like pump the brake, the yellow lights are flashing. Even victory can feel like death when you're out of gas. Elijah just had the greatest victory of his ministry. And he says, God, I want to die. Even victory can feel like defeat when you're out of gas. So when Elijah is exhausted, we see in verses 4 through 8, he does some instructive things. And if you're, if you're one of those people who comes to church and likes a 
point one, point two, point three, point four. I'm going to give you four right here. You ready? There's four things he does that are helpful for us. Number one, he entrusts himself to God. Lord, take away my life. He doesn't go into the wilderness and say, God, I can't go on and lay down and die. He says, God, I'm entrusting myself to you. I would, I'm out of gas. I cannot go on. But, so he says, Lord, take my life. Take my life. My grandmother, when she was 94 years old, I can remember her saying, I don't want to be here anymore. But the Lord knows how long I'm going to be here. She would say, I'm ready to go. My uncle had just passed away. My granddad had passed away a couple of years before. And she would say, I don't want to be here. I want to be in heaven. I don't even know why God still has me on this planet. But he does. So he's not done with me yet. He entrusts himself to God. Number two, he remembers he's only human. He says, I am no better than my fathers. You got any spiritual giants in your life? I don't know if any of you have some folks like that. Elijah would be an entire generation spiritual giant. An entire generation of God's people would look and say, that's who we want to be like. That's whose ministry we want to be like. That's, that's the courage we want to stand up against pagans. And he says, I am no different than my father's. He entrusts himself to God. He remembers he's only human. The third thing he does, and I love this, because some of you did this last week. Let me just, everybody look at me. Some of you went home last Sunday and took a nap. Did anybody take a nap last Sunday? Yeah. You watched the football game? That's good too. I think Carson went on his radio show and said, I, uh, on Monday morning, somebody, a pastor friend of mine in Malden texted me and said, I just heard one of your church members on the radio say that he took a nap on Sunday because he heard your sermon. I was like, well, that's awesome. Um, that's so good. The third thing Elijah does is he takes a good nap and he eats a good meal. He takes a good, what's your napping spot? Has anybody got a napping spot? I can promise you if my wife gets horizontal on our blue couch and gets under a blanket, it's over. Like last night, she was laying on the couch, we were watching television, and then she got the Snoopy blanket. And I was like, <laughs> I mean, rockets have been launched into space in less time than it, than it took Natalie to fall asleep. It was like 10, 9, 8, 7, 6. And her mouth falls open. And I won't tell you about the sound that came out next. But I mean, it was impressive. The snoring was impressive. She was out of gas. She took a good nap. That's what Elijah does. He takes a good nap, then he eats a good meal. What's your, what's your coma nap meal? Do any of you have a coma nap meal? Like a steak and a potato for me, it's over. Give me a nice thick cut steak and a big old baked potato with butter and then a blanket and some NASCAR or golf like we talked about last week, the two sports invented only for napping, it's over. Uh, for some of you, it's soul food. Man, if you give me some fried chicken, macaroni and cheese, mashed potatoes and gravy, and some green beans, I'm down for the count. Down for the count. If you give me, like, some dessert, like, you give me some uh, pumpkin pie or apple pie and ice cream, or, like, I'm a cookies guy, like, you give me a few chocolate chip cookies and some milk that's not whole milk, any milk that's not whole milk, like, you give me that, I'm done. Like, I'm coma nap. And that's what God does for Elijah. He is so tired that God lets him take a nap, wakes him up, and then feeds him a really good meal. The fourth thing Elijah does that's instructive for us is, and I want to encourage you with this, he's not afraid to repeat the process. 
takes a nap, eats the meal, takes another nap, eats another meal. Some of you need permission to take two naps. Some of you need to give yourself permission to take two naps. It would be okay to do it. That's totally, when you get to where you're empty, you need to refill. Even Elijah ran out of gas after victory. Even Jesus needed a nap. There were times Jesus was so ministry weary within the confines of his human body, that he just took a nap. And I'm not a New Englander by birth, but one thing that I have learned about living in New England is that my friends who were raised in the middle of the Puritan worldview is that like napping is borderline sinful. Like you gotta go, you gotta grind, you gotta work, you gotta get it done. And napping is what weak people do or lazy people do or however you wanna say that. And that is just not true at all. He took a good nap. The God of victory on the mountain, I think we have a slide for this. The, the God of victory on the mountain is the God of our exhaustion, the God of the nap, the God of the meal. God doesn't always reveal himself through mountains and fire and defeating pagans and sin and earthquakes and victories. God often reveals himself in the ordinary, a meal, a nap, a gentle whisper. Here's a question. Do we want God's power or do we want God's presence? Do we want God calling down fire or are we okay with God letting us take a nap and waking us up and feeding us and saying, it's going to be all right. A lot of times, especially for churches, we want God's power, but we're not necessarily willing to go into the humble place of just getting his presence. Everything cannot always be victory. Um, what a church, I think we have a slide for this too. What a church wins with the show, it has to keep with the show. What a relationship wins with the show, it has to keep with the show. What a marriage wins with the show, it has to keep with the show. What a resume wins with the show, it has to keep with the show. So there needs to be this sort of like, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me is not without effect. But we're not trying to do laser shows in here, and every Sunday has got to outdo the last Sunday and all that. Like, Nick and I don't feel any pressure to outdo last Sunday. Because if we try to win people to Christ with the show, we have to keep people with the show. And the same is true for your resume, your marriage, your friendships, all of it. Like, by the grace of God, we are what we are. Every day cannot be steak and lobster. Some days are just peanut butter and jelly. I would eat peanut butter and jelly every day for the rest of my life. Nick is praising the Lord back there. Like, I would do that too. Like, Every day can't be steak and lobster. Every day cannot be Christmas and Easter. It just can't. Like there are a lot of regular days. Most days are lived between the mountaintops, between the victories, between the high holiday, holy days. One thing I've learned and appreciate, I, I was raised a Baptist. I was Baptist before I was Christian, honestly. Like I was in, the, I was in a Baptist church from conception, like my mom was always there. What I've learned about Lutheran churches and Episcopal churches that I appreciate is they honor what's called the liturgical year or the church year, which has uh, something called ordinary time. 33 to 34 Sundays of the church year are an ordinary time. I think we have a slide, perfect. So Easter and Lent and Advent and Christmas 
make up the majority of the non-ordinary time church year. But most of the church year is done in what's called ordinary time. That's why if you ever go to a church and the priest, if you go in summer and the priest is wearing green, but you go at Easter and the priest or pastor is wearing white, or you go during Lent and they're wearing purple, their, their robes are honoring the, the church year, the liturgical year. Most of the church year is ordinary time. What a great phrase. Most of our faith is lived in ordinary time. Between the good stuff, between the amazing stuff, there's a lesson in there. Most of our life, our faith, our worship occur in ordinary time. It's okay to be ordinary when our Savior is extraordinary. (laughs) It's okay to be ordinary when our Savior is extraordinary. It's okay to be out of gas when our God is limitless in love and grace and control. Jesus never runs out of gas. He is more than enough. I want to encourage you to embrace a liturgy of the exhausted. A liturgy is kind of the order of service. I want to encourage you to embrace the spiritual disciplines of the tired. You know, the spiritual disciplines might be Bible, prayer, witness, being in community, sometimes fasting or silence. These might be the normal spiritual disciplines of the Christian life. Some of us need to add in the liturgy or the spiritual disciplines of the nap. You need to learn from Elijah and take a worshipful nap. We need to learn the spiritual disciplines of the good meal, of the cup of coffee. The good cup of coffee, too. Not the crappy cup of coffee that we just drink to, like, get the caffeine in. Like, the good cup. Like, the good stuff. Right? We need to learn the spiritual discipline of the good friend. Of a walk. Of exercising. Fall in Boston is just around the corner. There's no greater season living here than Boston in the fall. There's nothing better than riding along the Esplanade while the trees are turning. Add that to your liturgy, perhaps, this fall. Go out for a ride up into New Hampshire and look at the leaves changing. Let that be part of your worship, the reminder that God is in control. Don't be afraid to unplug, to worship, to be loved. Lately, Nat has noticed it. I'm trying to just at times just do this. And let my shoulders relax. Do you ever do that? Some of you need to do that even like right now if you want to. Like when I do that, I'm not just trying to let my shoulders relax. I'm trying to remind myself that God's in control and I don't have to carry the weight of everything. Elijah took a nap. And let God feed him. And then he took another nap. And he let God feed him again. When he was at the end of his rope. Our extraordinary Lord meets ordinary people. Exhausted people. With ordinary stuff. So we can experience extraordinary grace. Man, that's the gospel. That's the good news of the gospel. In just a moment, we're going to receive communion. And it is just bread. And it is just juice. Because God uses ordinary stuff to insert himself into our lives. And we are the most ordinary thing that God will ever use. And that is good because he is an extraordinary savior. He uses water in baptism. He uses bread and juice. He uses the quiet. He uses the nap. And he uses the ordinary time to remind us 
that he is extraordinary and to pour out on us his extraordinary grace. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you, Jesus, that the burden of salvation is definitely does not fall on us. And for anyone watching maybe online or anybody sitting in the room who's never given their life to you, I pray today that they would hear the story of Elijah, that you don't ask us to do everything to carry the weight of salvation or holiness. You've done all the work, Jesus. We just receive. You are the rest. The, 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 the literal nap that Elijah took, God, the nap is not a physical nap. The greatest rest that our hearts will feel is knowing that you have accomplished our salvation. You have conquered our sin. You've conquered death. You've conquered loneliness, and we can have relationship with you. The greatest meal is not whatever it was that that angel brought. The greatest meal is that Jesus is the feast. That in Jesus laying down his life as the sacrificial lamb, he becomes the feast and we can feast on all that you are God and all that you have. And that's all grace. So for the one who's never turned from their sin and trusted you, God, I pray that they would understand deep in their bones that being a Christian is not swapping one life to-do list for this religious to-do list. It's coming and resting in the work of Christ and trusting Christ's death for forgiveness of sins and trusting Christ's victory over death for victory in our lives, that we can be born again and have new life in you. Lord, for the ones in our church who are, I pray, God, that they would not go so fast, not because everybody else needs it or even because they need it, but God, because a part of our worship is trusting in you and living as a different people in a city that will work us to death, God. I pray that we would be a resting people. We love you. We honor you. In Christ's name, amen.